This is episode 137 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Hematopoiesis and Cardiovascular Disease, with Dr. Andrew Murphy. Hey everybody, I'm Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. But before we get on with that, are you guys interested in finding out which of your favorite researchers are being featured in the upcoming episodes of the podcast? You ought to be. We got a hit list. Check out our calendar at stemcellpodcast.com slash calendar to find out detailed information about our upcoming guests. Stay tuned for future episodes featuring Kristen Brennan, Joseph Penninger, and more. That's at stemcellpodcast.com slash calendar. And moving on to today's show and our guest, we have Dr. Andrew Murphy, who's from the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. He's on the podcast today to talk about his research on understanding how cardiovascular and metabolic diseases are affected by hematopoiesis and vice versa. We've also, of course, got a roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming up. But of course, before we get to that, the Stem Cell Podcast, we're still looking for a new co-host. So if you're an experienced stem cell researcher with the flair for science communication and conversation, then we want you to join us over here. To apply, visit www.stemcellpodcast.com slash co-host and submit your cover letter, CV, and a short recording yourself discussing a recent paper in the field of stem cell biology. Come on, guys. Great opportunity. You wouldn't believe the people I've spoken with over the course of the past two years. Join me, and we can keep on rolling. On to the roundup. We're doing a few neural stories today, as usual. A lot of neural. You know, I heard once that 98% of NIH funding goes to neural. That is clearly not true. But sometimes it feels like it, but it deserves it. Stories like this. This is a big one in Cell that just came out as we're recording here. Uh, this is from Anna Martin Vialba's group in Heidelberg. Um, so this is about the, the stem cell niche in the adult, okay, adult stem cells. So first, there's kind of, I, I wouldn't call it controversy, but a little bit of clarity lacking here. In, in the mouse adult brain, neural stem cells residing with the, in, within the ventricular, subventricular zone of the lateral ventricles, they generate all the olfactory bulb interneurons that are required to fine-tune odor discrimination throughout the lifetime of the mouse, which is a big deal if you're a mouse. You want to be able to smell stuff. In the adult brain, there's these Karolinska-type studies with the carbon dating that they reveal that there's new neurons in the striatum and it's thought that these subventricular zone neural stem cells are the source of the striatal interneurons. But there's a greater question, which is why does the brain start going bad as we get older? You know, is it a cell intrinsic defect? Is it a niche defect? Um, and how age influences neural stem cell function is controversial. Some studies say that, you know, neural stem cells in the adult brain, they retain the ability to proliferate. Um, some say they, they show decrease, some say more. It's controversial. Um, but it's generally appreciated, of course, that the somatic stem cells decline with age, their function. All right? And so Anna Martin Villalba and her group, 
they wanted to kind of really nail this down. And they do. They show pretty much that there's a dramatic drop in the neural stem cell number in the aging murine brain. But what they show, which makes this a cell paper and a big deal, is that it's increased quiescence that makes these older NSCs uh, resistant to regeneration, as they call it. So they're so busy sleeping that they don't wake up to, to regenerate any kind of injured brain. But if you do activate them, if you enforce activation, both young and old neural stem cells, they show similar proliferation and differentiation capacity. So the potential's there. Even these old withered neural stem cells, if you wake them up, they can go to work. But in the aging brain, the problem is that there's these niche-derived inflammatory signals and specifically this Wnt antagonist, soluble frizzled-related protein 5, and those are the factors that induce quiescence. And if you neutralize those factors, you can activate neural stem cells, even in some old, broken-down brain. Guys, this is huge, because in one fell stroke, it identifies quiescence as a key feature of this retiring niche. And it also uncovers a way to activate, to reinvigorate, and put them back to work. You know, a lot of old people coming out of retirement nowadays with the economy, what it is, we need to get our neural stem cells out there in the same way. Keep them working into their 80s and 90s to repair the aging brain. So wake them up, get them working, and we might be able to address some of these uh, neurodegenerative conditions and just generally get a little bit smarter. You know what I'm saying? I want to stay smart. I want to stay mentally acute into my 90s. Don't we all? Another way of doing that, we got a story out of Lorenz Studer's lab at MSK, Memorial Sloan Kettering. I love Lorenz. He's the greatest guy. And, uh, you know, one of the godfathers, forefathers of neural stem cell research in the field of embryonic pluripotent stem cells. And he's done it again, ladies and gentlemen. This time, of course, he's, he's staying close to home. He loves the glia astrocytes. Um, you know, astrocytes are the most abundant glial cell type in the, in the human brain. And when it goes bad with the astrocytes, there's a lot of pathogenesis that comes from that, both neurodevelopmental, you know, autism, developmental disorders like that, as well as the neurodegenerative disorders, you know. So uh, there's, a, there's a big focus on astrocytes. Can we get them? But the astrocytes are very different in different parts of the brain. There's a, there's, it's hard to get them out of there. And when you look in different parts of the brain, there's a lot of heterogeneity there. So getting a reliable and homogeneous source of astrocytes, it's a major challenge. All right. And, you know, in their ontogeny, that's a challenge in itself. Of course, we're talking about Lorenz here. You're thinking pluripotent stem cells. Make some astrocytes, man. And of course, he he tries and many others do try but the thing is in early development neural stem cells they're fate restricted they're front loaded just to make neurons and then later on they go they have this switch from a neurogenic to a gliogenic competency um, and so that then they can produce both the neurons as well as astrocytes and oligodendrocytes all right but the way the molecular mechanism by which this switch, this gliogenic switch, happens, it remains elusive. Um, but what we do know is that the timing is a real B, all right? It's in, in humans, it happens between six and nine months, all right, in fetal stages. So 
you know, when you translate to that, making astrocytes out of human pluripotent stem cells, we're talking about three to six months. And that's, that's what people have seen in culture. It can take like 24 weeks before you get a large population of functioning astrocytes during, using conventional differentiation. So, you know, it happens in culture, this gliogenic switch eventually, but the me- molecular mechanism underlying it remains unclear and the protracted time, protracted time that it takes to get there, it's a huge roadblock. You know, it's just in terms of like a pragmatic approach to generating astrocytes, not really there yet, 24 weeks, not very practical. But, of course, th- th- if you could get this switch to happen, if you could force the switch, you might be poised to like get a jump on the astrocytes. And that was the idea here. They looked at conditions in which uh, the gliogenic switch is a little bit accelerated and it favors an earlier differentiation of astrocytes, and they found that there's this protein NFIA, okay? And that NFIA, which stands for nuclear factor 1A, maybe it's NF1A, sorry about that. Um, No, it's NFIA. Um, If you overexpress that, you can get these pluripotent stem cell-derived neural stem cells, you can you, you get an increased expression of um, these glial markers, okay? So, and it's correlated with this CD44, which is a marker of glial competency. But th- what's interesting here is that it's kind of a, a switch, it's a suppressive switch. They showed through, you know, a lot of work showing that if they, they have an inducible NFIA, and if they activate NFIA, it induces the switch, but then the activity of NFIA itself prevents the cells from becoming glia. All right, so you kind of have to pulse with the NFIA, NFIA, induce the gliogenic switch, and then remove the NFIA, and then they very robustly differentiate into astrocytes. Okay, and the time scale, you know, we were talking about 24 weeks. You can make this happen as early as five days of differentiation. So compared with, you know, as much as 180 days using typical protocols, down to five days. That's a home run, Lorenz. You've done it again. Rapid production of human astrocytes for disease modeling or regenerative medicine. You know, the rest, let someone else deal with it. Piece of cake. You've done the heavy lifting. Take a break, Lorenz. Have a vacation. For goodness sake, you've earned it. All right, we're moving on to another study. So now we've talked about the adult brain. We've talked about a cell-based approach to making the cells that are constituent and important in these neurodegenerative diseases. And of course, we got to end neural with the organoids, all right? How do we get these cells to incorporate and make uh, something that looks more like the brain, all right? So brain organoids, obvi. It's become an important experimental tool for investigating and understanding both human brain development as well as neurological disorders and pathology, degeneration, neurodevelopmental, etc. Um, so the, the idea is let's make the cells into the 3D structure that is the brain because we know you can't really deconstruct to just the cells. It's the higher order structures in the brain that give us the mental capacity that we are so famous for. Um, some of us more than others. Oh boy, I'm not going to get political. I'm going to resist. But the thing is here with the organoids is that we're moving forward. We can get regional specific organoids. And now then the new wave here is like, okay, let's get the, the projections. Okay. Because it's not just about having 
the, the constituent parts of the brain, but there's all these neural projections between them. The connectivity is what really dictates the high order function, right? So now we're trying to fuse different regions of the brain and, and get the, the projections. And in, in, in the developing brain, uh, there's this thalamocortical and corticothalamic, so kind of going both ways, axon projections. They're, they're established between the cortex and the thalamus, of course, and they're critically involved in sensory motor processing, attention, arousal. Mm, arousal. Mm, you want that. So let's, let's get, you know, let's dig in. If we can get these projections, maybe we can understand these, these uh, attributes of the brain and the function. Um, and so uh, in Hume Park at Yale, uh, the goal here was to try and recapitulate these cortical thalamic projections that are involved in sensory motor processing, attention, and arousal. And they did that by first differentiating human embryonic stem cells into thalamus-like brain organoids, which was an innovation in itself. No one's done that before. And then, critically and importantly, they complexed these thalamic brain organoids with cortical organoids, which people have been able to do before, but infusing them together, they were able to get these, uh, the, the circuit. They could get the projections in both directions. Um, and this is a critical means of understanding just, you know, basic, the thalamic development, but also modeling these, the circuits that underlie these critical processes like we talked about. I'm not going to say it again. But sensory motor processing, attention, and the other thing, we want to know about that. And we're getting there now. We're getting these models that, you know, it won't be long before we always said organs in a dish, organs in a dish. But, you know, we're getting kind of like real deal organs in a dish. Well, with limits, of course. No limits to CRISPR, as we might surmise from what we see in the news is always a new story. And here we have two. It's kind of a two for one. This is in Nature Medicine, a story about how we're using CRISPR now to, not we, but these Spanish folks are using CRISPR to address, I think, one of the most visibly jarring genetic conditions because in particular it affects kids and it's so... Like I said, visible. We're talking about Hutchinson Guilford progeria syndrome. All right, I'm sure everybody here knows what I'm talking about, but just to give you the molecular mechanism, this is, uh, you know, it's characterized by the age, advanced age like manifestations emerging in early childhood. Okay, and almost all these cases result from a de novo point mutation in the LMNA gene. Okay, this is a gene that encodes both the nuclear lamins A and C. But when you have this de novo point mutation, it activates a cryptic splice site on one of the exons there, and that leads to the expression of progerin, which is a truncated lamin A variant, which has a big deletion of like 50 amino acids. And this progerin is like toxic. Okay, if you do like a mouse model of this progerin, it's been pretty well figured um, that you get the accumulation of this progerin 
is it leads to all the pathological hallmarks. But interestingly enough, it's it's the accumulation of progerin, not the loss of the lamin A. Okay, and that's critical in terms of uh, a CRISPR-based approach for this. The idea here is if you can just eliminate that progerin, that toxic form, and even getting rid of the lamin A that goes with it. If you just get rid of lamin A altogether. Um, and you won't have that introduction of the splice form, and you'll just get lamin C, which is a component of that gene sequence. Both products are made from the same stretch. Lamin C is enough to survive. So you just get rid of lamin A altogether. With it, get rid of progerin, survive. Both these groups did the same basic thing, and they reference each other in their papers. It was co-published as two brief communications in Nature Medicine. Still very important. It's Carlos Lopez Otin from Spain, and of course, Juan Carlos Ispezua Belmonte, who does it all, originally from Spain, uh, now it's Salk. So the Spanish have an have a, have a affinity for progeria, it seems. They both do the same idea, which is an adeno. They did a lot of development in the approach, but ultimately they converge on an adeno-based approach for atta- attacking that lamina gene. And... They did it in different ways. Uh, Lopez Otin's group, they injected intraperitoneally this uh, buttload of this AAV um, encoded uh, guide RNAs and the CRISPR into P3, so three, three-day-old mice. And uh, Juan Carlos's group at Salk, they, they introduced it into neonatal mice by the facial vein. And they each showed like it targeted a lot of the vital organs significantly, although not like you can imagine. You can't get an adeno to hit everything. But they hit an impressive variable, but impressive um, number of loci and showed that they were able to get the indels of the laminae in a significant portion. And I thought, amazingly, both kind of had the same uh, the, the end-of-day result that you care about. Is what does this do for the lifespan of the mice? Um, in addition to mitigating a lot of other pathology and hallmarks, lifespan was the real bottom line, and both of them showed a roughly 25% increase in lifespan. So this is a classic case of convergent investigation arriving at the same conclusion. Got to be true, especially from such esteemed scientists as these. Two papers in Nature Medicine that I guess, I mean, realistically, because it's a de novo mutation, these kids are born with it. You don't see it coming. But if you start treating straight out the gate, I mean, this could be a real therapy that for, for these people, there are therapies actually that are pharmacological based to try and mitigate the progerin accumulation. But I think this one would be more effective. We'll see if it gets into play. Last story. Um... You know, our, our guest today is, is Dr. Andrew Murphy, very interested in hematopoiesis and the cross-section of cardiovascular. We could have told some hematopoietic story that was cut and dried, but I think this is a glancing blow here because I want to tell this story about nature biotech. This is, I think, representative of a whole new, I think, wave of clinical translation of uh, cell-based therapy, I think that we're going to have to follow the lead here of Sonia Schrepfer and use her tool, this is out of UCSF. So, you know, the, the whole big wave, Yamanaka, post-Yamanaka was like, boom, 
autologous IPS cells, patient-specific treatments. Everybody's walking around with their own toolkit, and we're going to use it. But the problem is, is that, you know, making the tools from the skin cells or whatever biopsy you want to work with, it's laborious. It costs a lot of money. It's uncertain in terms of the quality, efficacy of each cell product has to be verified. Only really practical for chronic diseases, not like emergent, you know, not off the shelf. So for this reason, <laughs> I think it was a bold statement by Dr. Schreffer, but she said, and I might agree, she said, most regenerative approaches relying on autologous IPS generation have been abandoned. I mean, talk to the Japanese about that, but I think in the future we're going to have to move away because it's just not cost-effective for most, most. So off-the-shelf allogeneic cell products, more economically feasible, also practical. And, uh, you know, might be the best way, but the problem is, of course, you've got the potential for immune rejection. And therefore, you've got to immunosuppress the heck out of these people. Now, I don't know that that's really practical also for the rest of your life, although contingent on the disease condition and the HLA matching there, maybe a kind of kind of way to accommodate that. Nevertheless, it'd be better, right, if we had these non-immunogenic products. And that's what uh, the Schreffer Group was going after here. They, they first, I think, in terms of the rationale and their logical approach, it made a lot of sense. They took like a, just like a bait. They didn't just, you know, shoot from the hip. They said, okay, let's find a cell type that does evade the immune system generally. They focused on syncytiotrophoblast cells, which is the cells that form the interface between maternal blood and fetal tissue. All right. They say, what is it about these cells that allows them to just chill out and not get banged out by the maternal immune system? Well, they found that in large part it's the low MHC class 1 and 2 expression, as well as, as well as, and this is, I think, critical, high expression of CD47, which is this ubiquitous membrane protein that can interact with all kinds of different cell surface receptors in the immune apparatus to inhibit phagocytosis, all right? So this is kind of like a shield. Um, and what they showed is if they could engineer the, both mouse or human-induced pluripotent stem cells to lose their immunogenicity uh, via, like, getting rid of the MHC class 1 and 2, and also overexpressing CD47, they were like ghosts, spies, secret agents, running through the body, even when, even when they were like a, a immune unmatch, they were like really, they should have been quite visible. And the control cells where they didn't modulate them like this got totally wiped out, of course. Um, but these cells, they, they uh, were able to hide out and they retained their, their pluripotent stem cell potential. So it didn't affect that. They could differentiate to stuff, including endothelial cells, smooth muscle cells, and cardiomyocytes. Those are big hitters in the world of regenerative medicine. And those cells, they could evade immune rejection in fully mismatched MHC recipients, surviving for like as much as, as long as 50 days and beyond with no immunosuppression. So this could be a, uh, uh, an amazing means to getting around this kind of impasse here. What are the cell types we're gonna use? Well, we get an off-the-shelf product that's proven and can be rigorously qualified and then archived, frozen, whatever you want to do, for any patient or groups of patients 
according to HLA Match, that's a huge deal. And I feel like that's going to be kind of the landscape on which regenerative cell-based approaches are built. But let's see. Let's see how it works out. And, you know, maybe Andrew Murphy will tell us a little bit about that. But first, you know, i got to tell you about uh, stem cell technologies, of course. I love to talk about these guys. Stem cell technologies. They've been in the field of hematopoietic stem progenitor research for over 20 years. OG, okay? You know, Alan Eves, he, he, he invented a lot of this stuff. That's why he's, you know, at his chalet right now, probably skiing on, skiing off. Actually, he's probably in the lab cranking it out. My man doesn't sleep. Anyway, during those 20 years when stem cell technology was developing all this, they learned a few things, right? And uh, I think if you want to catch up with some of the knowledge, you should visit stemcell.com slash hemahub, H-E-M-A-H-U-B. All right? Um, it has a lot of educational research uh, resources, and it'll help you further your research on hematopoiesis and hematological malignancies. And I think when you have a look at the, the breadth of the research and the resources there, it'll uh, give you an idea of how deep the knowledge is over at Stem Cell Technologies. The HemaHub, ladies and gentlemen. Get on it. All right. Today we have Dr. Andrew Murphy, who's at the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Murphy is the Associate Professor and Head of the Hematopoiesis and Leukocyte Biology Lab at the Baker Institute. He's also a National Health and Medical Research Council Career Development Fellow and a National Heart Foundation Future Leader Fellow. Dr. Andrew Murphy, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. It's okay. Thanks for having us. Well, it's our pleasure to have you. Uh, why don't you start by giving us a brief kind of overview of the research focus in your lab, if you would. Okay, so my lab sort of works around hematopoiesis, but more in the context of chronic diseases, namely heart disease or cardiovascular disease. Um, so we've got a lot of projects focusing on basic stem cell biology, um, right through to how stem cells are influenced by cardiovascular risk factors like obesity, diabetes, autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis, and how they produce more monocytes or platelets to um, influence atherosclerotic lesion progression. And then we do some really fundamental biology on stem cell microenvironments and what causes stem cells to be retained or leave the bone marrow. Yeah, I mean, you have a pretty broad focus there. I just want to start with this uh, idea of a kind of cellular contribution to atherosclerosis and heart disease. I, looking over your papers, you have, you know, a kind of recurrent theme, whether it's hyperglycemia or obesity or hypertension. It's all kind of rooted in this idea of a cellular contribution to the disease pathology. Can you kind of explain how this manifests that our blood turns on us uh, and, and, and what the kind of underlying pathology is there? Right. So I think um, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is quite a complex disease because it's essentially a disease of the blood vessels where you've got um, an activation of the endothelial cells through um, things like oxidized um, lipoproteins, but then that um, triggers further inflammation. And really the lion's share of the research in this area has been done on the atherosclerotic lesion itself. You know, what happens to macrophages when they get in there? How do they chew up lipids? How do they get stuck? But really there's been this long-standing association between 
increased white blood cells, and namely of the myeloid variety, so the monocytes and neutrophils, and then how um, they, I guess, predict the severity and the, and, and um, the risk of cardiovascular disease. And so it wasn't until I joined Alan Tool's lab at Columbia University that this area started to gain a lot of traction. Um, so it had been long known that these associations were occurring, but from a mechanistic point of view, um, there really wasn't much science behind it. And so um, some key labs in Boston, namely Phil Swirsky and Mathis Darendorf, um, had done a lot of work in this area. And then Gwen Randolph, who was at Mount Sinai at the time, um, had done a lot of work on monocyte tracking into plaques. And so um, we started to come into this area when, we, when Alan's lab noticed that mice defective in cholesterol efflux, particularly in their hematopoietic stem cells, um, had a myeloproliferative phenotype. And so that, that, that got into, us into this area. Yeah, so this myeloproliferative phenotype, I guess, is at the basis of this. And you know, in the last episode, we talked about this reach, recent nature story that you're probably aware of linking the sleep fragmentation and hypocretin to colony stimulating factor and the increased myelopoiesis and the, in, in turn the atherosclerotic lesion or increased atherosclerotic lesion area. So this kind of connected the sleep deprivation and heart health issue that seems to be, you know, anecdotally observed. Um, do you, could you give us some more clarity in your own work linking the kind of, I mean, as you said, stepping back, that, that heart disease is a, is a big problem, multivariable, very complex. And you've linked all these separate things, including kind of nervous, sympathetic nervous system to atherosclerosis through this myeloproliferative phenotype. What is it about the link of the nervous system and 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 hematopoiesis and heart disease. What what could you elaborate on the intersection of those um, three criteria and try and connect why uh, we get disease pathology surrounding these three? Right. So I think probably the most important point to make first is that every risk factor acts through a slightly different mechanism, and so it's really important. Which is why Phil's paper in Nature that you just alluded to was so important because it put a, put a mechanism behind um, defective sleep um, patterns and cardiovascular disease. And so um, this, the link between the sympathetic nervous system and how that regulates um, the hematopoietic stem cell niche um, has been around for about just over a decade with Paul Frenette's group um, having a seminal paper in, in Cell back in 2006 on this where they showed that the bone marrow is innervated um, and that GCSF cooperates with the sympathetic nervous system to release hematopoietic stem cells. And so now we're seeing that um, diseases that, I guess, affect the sympathetic nervous system or, or um, conditions that affect the sympathetic nervous system producing more signaling um, in the marrow alters the hematopoietic stem cell niche to release these stem cells. And so whether that, in our case, that we studied hypertension, a more chronic um, sympathetic disorder, um, where you've got acute stress that the Swirsky group also studied, releases stem cells and now this defective sleep pattern. And so really these um, stem cells are being liberated um, out into the blood and they're moving to the spleen. And it seems as though when they, when they reside in the spleen, they become very myeloid-focused, producing a lot more monocytes. And then these cells um, have been shown through publications to really actively um, move to the site of the atherosclerotic lesion and, and sort of propagate the um, inflammatory phenotype there and, and grow the lesion in size. 
is this just a pathological byproduct of a normal process? Is there a reason why you have all these myeloid cells homing to the atherosclerotic lesion? Are they meant to be acting beneficially, or is this really just some kind of negative uh, byproduct? Well, I think it's it's sort of a required process because um, the monocytes are being attracted there by, by chemokines that they sense. And so, you know, when these immune cells generally go to an inflammatory site, they're there to um, mop up the infection or the um, the inflammatory cells that have, that have died there. And then a, re a resolution phase of inflammation is supposed to kick in. But we've seen because these plaques are so... Um, big and they're full of lipid and, and have a necrotic core, that when these monocytes get in there and turn to macrophages, they really become overwhelmed and they, they can't um, migrate out um, effectively. So you've got all these cells continually being recruited in there and then they're becoming trapped, either dying or um, just getting stuck. Mm, and these plaques uh, ultimately are dislodged in cardiovascular events. Is that part of what we're, we're looking at here at the end, at the end of the day? Yeah, that's right. So I guess at the end of the process, these lesions are becoming big. They're becoming what we'd call um, in the clinic unstable. And so they're likely to undergo um, what we call a rupture, um, exposing um, the plaque contents of the blood. And that's when you get um, the formation of, of the thrombus, which can either occlude the vessel or um, embolize and then um, cause an occlusion downstream, leading to um, heart attack um, or stroke. Yeah, and then, as you said again earlier, there's other factors at play in there. That, that those can be dislodged, but there's also the thrombotic events that are um, exacerbated by hyperglycemia. I mean, I'm probably getting a bit of this wrong, but it's, it's, it's very complex. In this one paper you had, you talked about the neutrophils and crosstalk to the hepatic niche, causing upregulation of IL-6 and thereby causing upregulation of thrombopoietin that then speaks to the megakaryocytes, and they shoot out a bunch of platelets, and that leads to more thrombus. Am I, am I kind of in the, in the right neighborhood there? Yeah, the point being is that... You have this whole chain of mechanism here, and there's many points at which you can can perhaps um, neutralize this increased thrombus, or is it the reverse? Is it because there's so many uh, points at which the whole system can break down towards a pathological sequelae? Would you, would you say that it, the complexity makes it harder to treat, or it gives you a lot more therapeutic targets? I mean, in a way, the complexity um, gives you more targets, but it's really been about selectively choosing the right target because you want to choose sort of upstream as you can go um, without having sort of off-target effects or, or um, detrimental effects in terms of normal homeostasis. And so um, the other important point is that, you know, we really, through sort of whole-body um, signaling, we need to understand which organs are talking to which organs and which cells are involved. And I think um, that's the key um, in, in these um, risk factors that, that drive cardiovascular disease through the change in, in hematology. Right. So given that we have to have a reason approach in our targets here, and this is a stem cell show, what, 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 what place do you think stem cells have in effective treatment of atherosclerosis, heart disease, you know, notwithstanding the basic regenerative cardiomyogenic approaches, what kind of uh, hematopoietic stem cell or progenitor cell therapies do you envision um, that could be applied to, you know, mitigate 
the complications of atherosclerosis? Yeah, so I think now we've come down to sort of two lines of targets. So one being the hematopoietic stem cell niche. Um, if we can preserve the niche in these diseases driven by sympathetic signaling or um, diseases that might break down the niche, um, if we can, we, we can keep those stem cells in the, in the marrow and keep them coercent, that should um, have some way in going towards um, dampening the myelopoietic phenotype. Or, you know, now we've, we've hit the stage with this growing body of evidence um, that a number of risk factors change the hematopoietic stem cell or the downstream progenitors. Is, are, we, are we at the stage where we can intervene against um, the success of signaling through things like CSF1 or GCSF? I think, I think that's where we're at now. But, I mean, obviously this has to be done with a lot of caution because those cytokines in these cells are also extremely important when we when we get into the area of infection and, and general immunity. Right. So I guess, the, I mean, there's a whole constellation of, of disease conditions for which this might play a role, uh, you know, in terms of you, you focus very much on hyperglycemia, obesity. Um, do you think that there's any uh, particular condition? All of these conditions seem to be uh, burgeoning in uh the developing world, do you think that there is a, 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 a disease condition that is best addressed with, a, with one of these types of approaches that you're speaking of? Um, or is it something that we need to apply broadly to mitigate the, the, um, the consequences of just obesity, diabetes, and all the other associated conditions? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because, again, um, you know, if we, if we think about hypertension, for example, there are some really good drugs that, that treat hypertension that could negate all these effects, but then we need to know um, what are the underlying causes of hypertension, so whether it's driven by the renangiotendin system or whether it's driven by sympathetic signaling. And then the same thing with diabetes. Um, you know, what are, what are the processes um, when you start to get into people with, with sort of me the metabolic syndrome and have obesity plus diabetes? And so... Um, in those sort of scenarios, we've we've sort of found a common molecule, which is the S100 A889 protein, and so um, in that condition, we think that might be the best target. So we're going sort of upstream of the stem cells and looking at the molecule that that, that might induce the myeloproliferative phenotype. Um, and so then there's the, the the other side is you know changes in cellular metabolism, and so whether that might be a good target, whether whether we're targeting cellular metabolism of the neutrophils, so they can't sense the glucose um, to produce the S100, or if we're targeting lipid metabolism in the hematopoietic stem cells themselves, which then might turn down the ability to um, sense growth factors, and then um, that might um, dampen their proliferation. So, I think again, it just really comes down to understanding what are the the, the mechanisms driving um, each disease or each risk factor, and how that links back to hematopoiesis. So, you know, just speaking more personally, I know you, you came from Australia or you came up there. You took a, you know, sojourn in the States there during your training. Now you're back in Australia. What are the research priorities or healthcare priorities in Australia? Is it similar to the U.S.? Is it a scourge of just kind of obesity and first world lifestyle? That's the major issue in terms of healthcare moving forward or is it more complicated? I imagine skin cancer is probably a big issue there as well. Can you give us an idea of what the healthcare priorities are in Australia? 
Yeah, I'd say it's pretty similar to the United States. We've got the same, you know, burden of um, disease. So cardiovascular disease remains the largest killer in Australia as it does um, in the States um, with with all um, cancers a close second. So um, right now we've got a new medical, um, it's called the Medical Research Future Fund, which is funding translational research and and ways to, to tackle these major diseases, but also very important rare diseases. And so um, just this week we've had um, the government commit to uh, putting money towards um, our healthcare system, which is Medicare, um, to fund um, healthy heart checks. And so the idea being that if we can capture people early, um, we can get them onto the appropriate therapies and then limit the amount of people actually having a cardiovascular event. And so, um, you know, I think there's, it's 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 sort of like the the general thing of the developed world that there's um, diseases that are very, very prevalent that, that the government's sort of keen to get on top of. And I think we're seeing that now in Australia. Yeah, and I, I know you've been on both sides here of the pond in terms of the funding apparatus. You probably have some insight. What's different about Australia in terms of, you said that they're allocating money to healthcare. Is it similar generous allocation for basic research or is it more focused on clinical care? So that, that's more focused on clinical care. The basic research, um, we have um, one mainstream to go through, which is the NHMRC or the National Health and Medical Research Council. So there we apply for um, two main types of grants. One is um, an investigator scheme, so that works by funding um, a person, um, their salary, and then um, an, a, an associated research um, portion as well. Uh, that's the first year is occurring this year, so we, we've just submitted grants on that, so we, we'll find out how that new system goes. And then the second system is called ideas grants, and they're um, not really based on track record, they're based on the idea and then the feasibility. So if you can justify the idea that it's you know innovative, significant, and then show that the lab you're in or your lab can, can do this, then um, we've got a long way to getting funded. We also have some, some sort of PPG equivalents. Um, they're called synergy grants, but um, they're a bit smaller in, in sort of funding size. So they're about, they're capped at 5 million Australian dollars uh, you can have a number of different groups um, apply together to try and get these, but they're very competitive. They think there's only 10 handed out across the country each year. Wow. And so the one the one really hard thing about the Australian system versus the American system is that we only have one round of um, funding each year, and there's no history. And so when you, you know, apply for your RO1 in the US and you, you get close, you can sort of do some more work and reapply and there's history in the system, that doesn't happen in Australia. So, you know, you could be close to getting funded one year and nowhere near it the next year. So it's really, um, that's really challenging, we find. Wow. And it seems like, I mean, of course, in, in the, amongst the big names, yourself among them, everybody knows the Australian researchers, but uh, would you, I mean, I guess the question is like, is it, is it hard, would you say, to, to rise up in the system is it dominated you know they say in the u.s system it's the rich get richer and there's a few major labs and it's hard to really penetrate as a young investigator would you say that it's a similar phenomenon the world over or is different funding apparatus or similar funding apparatus in australia lead to different of the same problems um i think it's not as not as bad we've seen um 
recently with the change in the grant systems that there is is money available for younger investigators. And now that the grant system cha has changed, um, it's going to be very hard to run big labs in Australia. I think um, the amount of money going into each lab now is going to be capped. So uh, I think building big empires is going to be quite quite challenging. Hmm. Perhaps for the best. I mean, a lot of young investigators, I could see myself moving to Australia. I don't know about visiting. It's so far away. you got to go for at least two weeks. But moving there sounds like... Uh, very tempting. Not that anybody's inviting me, but any young investigators out there that have an interest, talk to our man here, Andrew Murphy. You know, I got one question I should have slipped in in the more basic conversation here, but there's this idea of like the clonality, clonal hematopoiesis, mm. and a connection to cardiovascular disease. Is there, you know, going to be, you think, moving forward, I, there's like the regenerative approach and, and all kinds of therapeutic approach in terms of mechanism, but just in terms of diagnostics, do you think it's going to become routine? to look at kind of clonal hematopoiesis as a risk factor for heart disease? Especially, you know, apropos to your research, it seems like if you had some proliferative, you know, myelopoietic progenitors, that that would be a major liability for hypertension, hyperglycemia, obesity, the whole nine. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I mean, we've seen um, particularly New York react to this. So I know Sloan Kettering has got a, um, a, a chip clinic, if you like now, Ross Levine set that up. So they're trying to capture people that um, that have got CHIP and see what their risk factors are moving forward to whether that be a leukemic phenotype or a cardiovascular phenotype. Uh, whether we do genetic testing is an interesting question. Um, we have to see you know, how fast these clones grow. And then um, what we don't know yet is how they're interplaying with other diseases. Um, and so does diabetes, you know, enhance the proliferation of these cells as the clone emerge faster? And could that be a really important um, driving mechanism as to why people with diabetes or obesity have increased cardiovascular risk? And so I think when a bit more basic science is done, we'll understand a lot more about these somatic mutations and what, what they really mean for, for cardiovascular risk. But in saying that, um, if we look at the CANTOS trial, they had a poster recently at at um, American Heart Association. And so in that trial, they treat um, people that are at high risk of a secondary cardiovascular event um, with the anti-IL-1 therapy, so an antibody to, to IL-1. Um, and when they stratified their patients based on the TET2 mutation, and so when you have a mutation in TET2, there's more IL-1 being released from macrophages, they showed that those patients um, did better when they were in, on anti-IL-1 therapy. Um, and so anti one therapy won't be a main therapy for cardiovascular disease because it's too expensive um, for a chronic disease. If we, you know, understand the genetics of the people, that maybe there'll be a select population that may really benefit from um, a therapy like that. I see. So, I mean, I guess my takeaway from this conversation is that there's many strata upon which the cardiovascular disease acts, many mechanisms um, by which it manifests. Uh, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I think you have more insight certainly than me and many of our listeners. Maybe you could give us an idea of like how, and I know therapy for each disease, as you just kind of said, is going to be very specific um, to that patient. But could you give us a kind of general, like the flow, the, the, the flow diagram, the treatment paradigm for diabetes, hypertension, for these whole constellation of diseases that ultimately kind of converge on cardiovascular disease what what how do you envision 
be it regenerative, diagnostic, pharmacological, how is what's the best way that we're going to best practices for these patients, let's say in 10, 20 years when we've really made a lot of progress on the ideas that we're putting forth now? Right. So I think um, like a lot of diseases, it comes back to first identifying some really um, novel um, and robust biomarkers that give you an indication on if you've got a risk factor, what type of risk factor that is. So in the setting of hypertension, you know, what's your hypertension driven by? And then um, selectively targeting those pathways. So right now, you know, I think the cardiovascular space is sort of slowly merging into the understanding, um, which has been in the cancer field for, for decades, that cardiovascular disease is, is very different among different people. Um, so the personalised precision medicine will come into play, I think, over the next couple of decades. Um, and so I think that, that that's where we'll make some really big inroads into really getting the clinicians to understand their patients um, at a more in-depth level that rather than just applying, um, you know, if you like, broad-spectrum anti-cardiovascular drugs like statins and, and some basic anti-hypertensives. So I think that's where we'll make some bigger inroads over the next 10 to 20 years. Hmm. So more, I guess, personalized kind of where we are in the cancer field now. Um, although it seems like a big part of the problem is, well, I guess, do you think that there's a place? Obviously, of course, there's a place for preventative. But do you think... Um, that the, that we're getting better in terms of understanding the root causes of these? Are, are, can we prevent? Are we always going to be mopping up after the mess is made, do you think? Uh, I think in terms of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, it's a lifelong disease. You know, there's reports that even, you know, children have these fatty streak lesions in their in their arteries. And so I think that's a normal sort of, part of biology that um, we need to maybe instruct macrophages in some way to be able to clean up these these lesions a lot more efficiently. Um, in terms of prevention to more end-stage diseases like um, heart attack and stroke, I think then we can start to think about prevention in that space or at least um, a delayed onset. So, you know, the work that we do, we're really interested in what accelerates cardiovascular disease because we think there's a lot of merit in understanding the, you know, people that are sort of middle-aged and why they're getting cardiovascular disease um, at, a, at an accelerated rate. Because really, if you look at um, treatments for cardiovascular disease, in the above 60 population, there's been great inroads into um, delaying the onset or, um, or reducing, reducing cardiovascular disease in that population. If you look at people under 60, between 40 and 60, there's been um, little inroads made. And so I think now that, you know, we're getting a lot of um, comorbidities that occur with cardiovascular disease, that, that's the area to really look at as well in terms of, of prevention. Yeah, just on a, the kind of the flip side of the major focus of your research, the, these kind of malicious maladaptive effects of the myelopoiesis, is there the flip side of that? Is there a way that you can kind of get the hematopoietic cells to work for you in a beneficial way? Yeah, that that's a, that's a possibility as well. And so I think um, in that respect, it's um, allowing this hematopoiesis to occur, and then trying to harness the beneficial potential of of the of the mature cells they make. 
And so again, it comes into things like like the macrophages and um, trying to get these cells to work more efficiently. Um, and so we've got projects looking at that and how to maybe alter the metabolism of the macrophage and so they can process the lipid more effectively. All right, Dr. Murphy, I think this is a, a dense conversation. We've really gone deep into uh, a lot of your research and the implications. Now I want to get a little bit more superficial view of you as a person. Um, we usually do a couple questions at the end of a more personal nature. The first one of these, you know, there's this book everybody's telling me to read, Bad Blood. I don't know if you've heard about it with this whole Theranos fiasco. That's a good one for all you out there. But I'm going to ask you, what's the non-science book that you're reading or have read that's awesome for a scientific or non-scientific audience? Right. So I've got probably two, two books that I've, I've enjoyed um, reading. So um, as a sport, I love to sail. I haven't, haven't done a lot of sailing recently, but um, there was um, – a book called 500 Days, and it's about um, this guy, Serge, who built a 12-foot yacht and sailed it around the world, and and actually by doing that was um, um, a Guinness Book of Records holder for selling the smallest yacht around um, the world single-handedly. So that was um, quite interesting because he had a lot of issues to deal with, and um, it was actually quite a good read. And then the other things I like is um, I like true crime. And so Melbourne, where I live, there's um, a lot of, um, you know, underworld sort of figures and that. And so one of the books that I really enjoyed reading was called The Street. It was about an undercover cop who sort of got himself, um, you know, really in the, in the thick of all these underworld figures and, and brought a lot of them down. So that was um, also a really interesting read for me. Wow. Those are like normal person books, not nerdy science books. I'm so delighted to hear that. Although I have one qualm with the definition of a 15 or 12 foot, I don't know what you said, as a yacht. Mm. I think we're going to have to have to go over the dimensions there, but it's probably just lost on me what defines a yacht. All right. Those are cool books. I'm going to have a look at those. Number two, this is a pretty basic question. Who are your scientific heroes or who's your hero? Yes. Yeah. So in terms of scientific heroes, um, I know some people have got, you know, someone throughout history that they've looked up to. Um, because we've sort of switched fields a few times, I guess my scientific heroes are ones that um, uh, I find quite um, influential in that particular area. So on the stem cell field, people like um, David Scadden, John Deke, Paul Frenette um, really come to mind as, as sort of heroes or, or inspirations inspirational figures um and then um you know i was um being in melbourne um don metcalf's always um someone that a lot of us have always looked up to um i haven't really ever met him personally only a couple of times just to say hello um but was fortunate enough to have him as a co-author on one of my papers and um my wife worked at the walter and eliza hall where, where don worked and on the weekends we'd go on and do experiments and we'd see him you know, getting dropped off to go and to go and look at some um, cells down a microscope and that. So, um, having someone so so dedicated and, and loving it till, you know, essentially the last days of his life is um, is also pretty inspiring. I think. Yeah, that is inspirational. And you know, I think you'd be surprised when we've talked to people about their scientific heroes. A lot of them don't talk about Einstein or Marie Curie. They talk about the uh, scientific inspiration in their own life. So I would say most scientists are inspired by those around them that make them think. And I'll tell you, 
Paul Frenette will be delighted to have his name ring out as a scientific hero. He was just on our last episode, and uh, you know he talked about all his all the people in his life. Uh, as you know, the, the we have uh, another question that he said that without the people in his life, he would not have gotten where he was. So uh, I think it goes both ways. The heroes uh, think of their mentees as an inspiration, and vice versa. Dr. Murphy, thanks so much for joining us. I know uh, you're a little bit out of sorts with the timing in Melbourne, but uh, you were uh, an inspired conversation and interview. Thanks for uh, taking the time. That's okay. Thank you. All right. That was a great chat with Dr. Murphy, and it brings us to the end of our show. This was a good one, guys. Hematopoiesis, cardiovascular disease. You didn't know that the blood could turn on you, so you better take care of your diet. You can reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with some feedback. Or if you want to suggest some guests or volunteer to be a guest, we'd love that too. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode number 137 of the Stem Cell Podcast. We'll be back in a couple weeks to talk to you about something new and innovative. So stay tuned. We'll blow your mind.